what a great joy and peace it is to know that. And also, too, thinking on as a Christian, truly the only ones that can ever have peace, can never have joy. Um, and that song, that's still my rock, my salvation, no matter what, no matter what we're going through in life, we could literally be stripped of every single thing, but yet still possess everything. And, and it's a great joy to know that. And those who are in Christ, uh, that, that great promise that he's going to bring us to completion, he's going to come back and, and return and, and gather us to himself. And, and so take rest in that, take, take solace in that and joy in that. And so... This week, I got to uh, spend some time with, with Stephen Lawson, uh, dodging knife hands all week as he shoots them across the room. And, uh, but as he always says, it's game day. It's game day. So uh, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. Next week, we'll likely finish up this letter. But we're going to deal specifically with, with verse 16 and 17 with a focus here on verse 16. So we're, we're reaching here this final crescendo of uh, John's symphony here on, on praying. Right? He gave us this uh, thread here about praying. And this is the, kind of the, the climax, the, uh, the final uh, exhortation here. And... Within this last statement here, there's it's a verse here that is striking to the heart. Uh, for those who understand the statement that John proclaims, it's, there's much comfort. For those who may not, those who may read it, and uh, they may begin to wander themselves into perhaps despair, wondering, like, is this me? Have I done this? Have I committed this sin that leads to death? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, the overarching umbrella of the sin of disbelief. The sin of disbelief. Being in in spiritual darkness. Uh, We've all were there. We've all were caught in that sin before Christ pulled us out of it. So yes, in that sense, but no, in the specific sense here on what John is referring to, in that of uh, disbelief in an apostasy sense. So being an apostate in someone who, who is in the faith in the sense of superficial, it's not true-saving faith, but professed to know Christ, uh, professed the things of Christ, but yet flipped the coin and went the other direction and now is in an atheistic mindset uh, in disbelief. And so no, in that sense, as a true believer can never fall into that. But yes, in the overarching umbrella of the sin of disbelief. So, but for you, for you who are in Christ, the greatest miracle has been performed on your life. The greatest miracle of all time. A miracle that's not temporary, but is eternal. It's an eternal miracle. A miracle so immense that even the sin of disbelief, that sin has been eradicated. 
It's gone. It's, it's no more. It's like a star that has been plucked from the heavens and, and, and never to be seen again. That's one sin that, as a true believer, they will never commit again. Whereas a true believer, we know that we can, we can sin. Uh, John even says, if we say we have no sin, we're, we're a liar. But the sin of disbelief is gone. It's eradicated. Because the Holy Spirit testifies to you the truth of who Christ is. So in this two-verse passage, we find two people groups that will serve as our headings as we plunge into the depths here of this text. So the first heading will be the brethren, and the second will be the bondage. And so take heed, uh, the perfect inerrant word of God as I read this morning, verse 16. This states, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your life-giving power. Thank you for the cross and, and your atoning work through your son Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit presses upon our hearts the truth of this passage, that we find great joy and comfort in knowing that even when we sin, we have a great advocate, a great advocate with you in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for that promise that you will bring us to completion. And we pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, the brethren. John's speaking on the brethren here. When he speaks on the brethren, uh, we see the vast majority of the time in the New Testament, when we see that, it's talking about fellow believers. There's a few instances where uh, it's talking about kinsmen. Peter, uh, his sermon at Pentecost, there's the, a dialogue there and speaks of brothers. There he's speaking of his, his kinsmen. Um, so we have to look at the context here. We know John is talking to the churches of Asia Minor, which consisted of Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles. And, and so when he uses that there statement, brothers, if anyone sees his brother, he's speaking of fellow believers, those who are in Christ. So it says if he sees, the Greek phrase there, on tes ide, it's ide, the Greek word, it, it it foresees. It means to become visible, become visible and to be made known. So it's actually physically seeing a brother committing sin. It's not uh, hearsay. It's not, oh, I heard this person was doing this or that. No, it's when you, you, you see specifically brother committing a sin. So first of all, how does one see? Like, how does one come to that spot where they see a brother sinning? Well, first, uh, they must be around one another. And there's that implication of, of building one another up and fellowshipping with the saints. Uh, they must be intentional about their relationship. And so, I mean, young men, listen to me on this one. When, when that intentional relationship with your friends, 
And this goes across the board, but um, there's a time in, in a young man's life where, where he has to move on from essentially the, the childish things when it comes to their relationship with their, their fellow brother in Christ. Where it's not only just games and, and, and playtime, but it's exhorting each other, building each other up, encouraging one another in Christ. An intentional relationship. That goes across the board, but um, specifically on my heart there to the young men. Um, your brother depends upon you to, to encourage and build up, especially in the world in which we live in. And, and so to see, as I say, we must not neglect the fellowship of the saints. Let's be around your fellow brothers and sisters uh, and not in the sense of uh, a sin police just looking for what they're doing and, and calling them out. Right? But no, it's, it's, it's an encouraging way where if you see a fellow brother or sister slipping into sin, um, just calling to, to love them and love them in a way that, that is calling them to, to pull away from that sin and to remind them of the profession they made. And so there must be a, an earnest concern for one another's souls. One who watches a friend live in sin, whether that sin is of commission, so an acting out of sin, or whether it's the sin of omission, which is just simply doing nothing, not answering the call as an ambassador of Christ. Whatever sin it may be, if one watches that friend live in that sin, they're no friend at all. There's a a brotherly love that goes beyond the the phileo love, that Greek love, word for love that is, is... usually indicates friendship or brotherly love. It goes beyond that. Rather, it extends to the agapeo, the agape love, that love that is from above, that love that that transcends all human love, that love that has been imputed in you by the Father. It's the very love in which His attribute flows. So it's the type of love that, that goes beyond, it goes well beyond the here and now. It's not this, this temporal love. It's a type of love that is, that is shot from the canon of eternity. Because the love that has eternity in the forefront. It's the love that is more concerned with other souls than with dodging an uncomfortable conversation. Paul says to the Galatians chapter 6, Right at the beginning, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Someone who is stronger in faith. One who has already plucked the, 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 the log from his own eye. James 5.19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul and save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So that that covering of sins is credited to Christ's atonement alone as he uses his vessels as instruments to bring back the wandering sheep. It would be an example of 
of first and second causes. That second cause would be the, the person going to their brethren and, and, and exhorting them and reproofing and rebuking them. Bringing them back. The first cause, though, the first cause is God. That, that, that he who started a good work will bring that person to completion. The, the first cause is that, that that person was written in the Lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world. And that first cause is God, the Holy Spirit, imputing that conviction in that person's heart to go, to go and bring back that wandering sheep. So the credit is always where credit is due. He's the one who covers the multitude of sins. He's the one who brings back his wandering sheep. So if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. Committing a sin is the verb form of harmatano. It's an active present verb. And so it's not something that has happened in the past. It's something that is currently an active. So that it is not leading to death. Leading to death. Pros thanaton. It's a very strong Greek phrase. It can mean physical death. It also indicates spiritual death, which John is speaking of here. So first, what this is not. This is not the fullest supposition of the papist's mind. It's not what this is. This is not the, the, the cattywampus false doctrine of mortal sin. The belief where certain sins cut a person off completely from God and will lead to, to death unless that sin is confessed to a priest from a wooden box. It's not what this is. This is not what John is speaking of here. There's only one sin. One sin, if left unchecked, that leads to the eternal spiritual death in which John is referring. This is that sin of disbelief. Specifically, again here, of the apostasy nature. So John, here indicating... There is sin that, that does not lead to death. Remember, he's, he's referencing a certain people group. He's re- referencing a brother. And what is, it, what is the prerequisite to be a brother in Christ? It's not sinless perfectionism. It's belief. It's belief. Belief in Christ. Belief in, in what Christ has done on the cross. And so, this sin that, that does not lead to death, does not lead to, to prosthenaton, it could be anything, anything other than the sin of disbelief. Because that is the only sin that leads to death, to eternal spiritual death. Colin Cruz perhaps has one of the, uh, the best commentaries out there on First John. He makes a very clear statement uh, on this sin that does not lead to death. He says this, The sin that does not lead to death is the sin believers commit and for which forgiveness has been secured by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. I added that last part. Think about what other fuel do we need? What other fuel do we need when it comes to intercessory prayer for another brother? And what I mean by that, that's what he's talking about here. Interceding on behalf of someone else. 
So this, this intercessory prayer where we go into prayer for somebody else. What other fuel do we need? None. If that person's profession is true, he will without a shadow of a doubt be restored. Without a shadow of a doubt, that person will be restored. Christ did not die on the cross so that his sheep remain wandering. No. He leaves the 99 to go and gather the one wanderer. His sheep hear his voice. They come to him. He's the good shepherd. He leads his sheep to green pastures. He leads them to still waters. He restores my soul. And so John then, he proclaims emphatically, he shall ask. He says, he shall ask. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. That's drawing our minds back to verse 14 as we covered last week where he says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's that confidence. That confidence that's in accordance to his will. And we can have that confidence uh, in all his promises and knowing that what God has said will come to pass. Philippians 1.6, I've already said it a few times here this morning, where Paul, he says, I am sure of this. Right? So we see Paul's confidence. He says, I am sure of this. And he says, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. Will bring it to completion. That's great confidence we should have. That's the, that's the P in the, the, the tulip. If you're familiar. T, the total depravity. The, the U, the unconditional election. The L, the limited atonement. I, the irresistible grace. And the P, Perseverance of the saints. We should have confidence. We should have boldness. The Greek word parousia. We've seen it. John uses it quite a bit. He used it when he, when he spoke of Christ's return and his coming. Right? We should have confidence. We have parousia in his coming. We should not shrink back. It's the same confidence we should have in prayer. When it comes to intercessory prayer uh, that is in accordance with his will in accordance with his promises. And we, we ought to have the confidence of, of a hungry grizzly bear that's standing in a three-foot stream during spawning season. It's a guarantee. He's going to get that fish. It's a guarantee. It's the confidence we should have. It says we shall ask and God will give him life. Give him life. He will restore his soul. He will restore his soul and gather back his wandering sheep. He is the good shepherd. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Take courage. Take courage in, in, in knowing that great promise. And so, think on that. What, what are we ought to do? How are we to approach this? Uh, because I think it's more than, than, than just prayer. We see uh, that there are exhortations to, to go to a brother to reveal their sins to them encourage them in the promise of Christ so first we must check ourselves we must pull the, the log from our own eye if need be go to that brother 
rebuke, reproof with a gentle spirit. He says that with a gentle spirit. And that's, I'll give you an example of what not a gentle spirit is. It's going to somebody and just essentially attacking them about their sin and, and pointing a finger at them and look what you're doing. Why are you doing this? And no love, no gentleness. Not breaking the reed as Christ is our example. You should go to them in, in gentleness and love, wanting to see that brother restored, wanting to see that brother uh, be more conformed in the image of Christ. There's discernment in it too. Like I said, this is, he's speaking of this uh, committing a sin, not leave this, this continuous active sin. So this is like, we're leaning in the side of habitual sin. Again, we sin all the time. If we want to have a sin police, we, it would be a miserable time fellowshipping with the saints if we're just pointing out every single thing that we do wrong. This is leaning into that habitual sin. We're becoming a, a pattern in lifestyle. So going to a brother. Secondly, not just gossip, gossiping and, and grumbling about it, but, but taking action. Praying and praying with confidence. Confidence, knowing that that, that that brother will be restored. If that brother's profession is true, they will be restored. And the power of Christ's blood is not, not only the power that, that regenerates, but it's the, the power that restores, it's the power that preserves, the power that, that sanctifies and brings to complete and perfect glorification. So it cannot be as Cain. Put yourself in, in that shoes. Where if God would come to you and ask, where, where is my, my sheep? Insert name. Whatever it may be. Whatever it may be pressed upon your heart right now in this moment. How should you respond? Should you respond, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. But at this time, it is, it's not the blood of Abel that cries out. It is the very blood of Christ that is shed on Calvary's hill that is crying out for his lost sheep. Who will go? Who will go? We don't need any more canes. We need more Isaiahs. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Prepared in your heart to go, wherever it may be. To go and gather the, the lost sheep, to go and restore a brother, to break uh, through that, that, that thought of an uncomfortable conversation with someone. We must be willing to sacrifice for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Well, because Christ did. Because Christ did sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. So that's the brethren. We have great joy, great confidence. Those who are in Christ will be brought to completion. God will not leave them wandering and astray. Secondly, here we see the bondage. The person who is gripped in the bondage of sin. It says, there is sin that leads to death. We already hit on that sin. The sin of disbelief here, 
uh, apostasy. Uh, so I want to focus on what that leads to. What does that sin lead to? Spiritual death is, is the state of all mankind by nature and is the present state of all unbelievers. Paul to the Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, he says, And you were dead, spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So following Satan, following Satan and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the, the, the tea in the tulip. Total depravity. This is the, the, the state of man born into the sins of Adam. Spiritually dead. Since this death uh, is, is by nature universal, it should be of great concern to us. First, individually. Individually, that, that, that those not in Christ are spiritually dead. Yes, their physical bodies can move about and do things. But their makeup is spiritually dead. They go about their day not concerned whatsoever about the things of God, the greater things in life. Their focus is on worldly things. They're in bondage, enslaved to the prince and the power of the air. So this is something individually one must come to grips with, to examine oneself. Secondly, evangelistically. Now, those who are in Christ and knowing that where you once were walking the, the course of the world once spiritually dead but yet now alive in Christ and knowing that there are those out there that are still walking in darkness. It should be an evangelistic thrust each and every time we are reminded of where we once were. What is spiritual death? By definition, it's the alienation from God. Separation from His grace. Ephesians 4.18 says, They are darkened. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. Because of their ignorance. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Do to their hardness of heart. There must be a, a spiritual heart transplant that must take place. Hearts are hardened. Ears are dull. Eyes are closed. This is the consequence of the fall. 
Paul says to the Romans, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because of sin. This has been accredited to each and every one of us. This spiritual death because of the sins of our forefather, Adam. The framers of the 1689, uh, chapter 6, speak on this, in, of this total depravity and, and this, by nature, being born into the sins of Adam. We'll probably get here, and if you're following along on the podcast, probably in the next three weeks or so, we'll be here in this chapter. Um, but I want to read you these, these short two paragraphs from the, the framers of 1689. Paragraph 2 says, Our first parents, by this sin, that sin of disobedience, by this sin fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. And we in them whereby death came upon all, all become dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of both soul and body. They go on to say, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room and steed of all mankind. So Adam and Eve standing in the steed of all mankind. The guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by original generation being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. As they sets them free. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand? For Jeremiah and Isaiah. Total depravity. That's spiritual death. It's where we all were once walking. That's spiritual death before, before the Holy Spirit imputed upon our lives the atoning work of Christ, bringing us from death to life. So, what is the way? What is the way of, of deliverance from this bondage of spiritual death? Deliverance is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Four of the five solas of the the, the Reformation. Sola gratia, sola fide, solas Christos, sola Deo, gloria. There's only one way. One way alone. Listen here, hear hear the words of our Lord. John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, truly, truly. So that's a very profound statement. It says, listen, listen to my words. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And he says it again, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead, spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
will live. Within those two verses, we have the the T, the the U, the L, the I, the P of the tulip. The total depravity, right? Dead people don't hear. They don't hear. With the unconditional election, dead people can't bring themselves back to life, either physically or spiritually. With limited atonement, not all will hear. With irresistible grace, those who hear will live. They will live. They must live. It's not a maybe. It's not a, a plausible. He says, my, my sheep hear my voice. He says, I know them, and they follow me. They follow him. The irresistible grace of the call of the good shepherd. So lastly, I want to hit on here, what are the evidence? What are the evidences of being delivered from spiritual death? We've hit on this quite a bit through 1 John. It gives us all these, these series of tests. First, those that have been delivered, are, they're free. They're free from the, the bondage in which sin inflicts. Uh, one indication that John reveals that we've hit on most recently is love. Love for the brethren. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, We know we have passed out of death into life. We've passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. The life-giving waters of Christ. He says, we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It says one primary mark of one who's passed from, from death to life. It's the way in which they love. Because again, it is not a a worldly love. It's not a a phileo love. It's the agape love that transcends all love. And it comes from above. It's the love that is willing to sacrifice for one another. It's a love that is willing to go far beyond the, the normal love that we see. John, then he gives this very shocking statement here. He says, there is sin that leads to death. And he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. It's very shocking. The Apostle John saying that there's time to pray, there's time not to pray. This is a statement that is meant to, to rattle the soul. This is a grave warning against apostasy. Again, that, that, that disbelief that goes beyond the general disbelief. It's the one who once tasted the things of, of the Spirit, but yet turned. Because remember, when John is writing to the, the churches of Asia Minor, he's combating against these Gnostic beliefs. One specifically, that, that, they, that Christ did not come in the flesh. He started his entire letter here making this statement that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and is now made manifest to us. I mean, 
He starts off just combating against these Gnostic views that, that Christ did not come in the flesh. They're saying, he's saying, yes, he did. I seen him. I put my hands upon him. It wasn't just a spirit floating around. So John, he's combating against uh, these false teachings that are coming in to the church. And he's saying, do not turn. Do not become an apostate. He says, I say I do not, I do not say that one should pray for that apostate. Well, I'm going to open this up here a little more in, in what he's talking about here. But bring your minds to Paul as well. Paul's speaking to Timothy. He says, now the Spirit expressively says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So like Paul, John places this, this statement here as a, as a deterrent from apostasy. Saying, stand fast. Cling to your profession. Make note here, this verse, this verse does, not forbid, does not forbid praying for someone. It just says that, that we are not under any obligation to do so. Calvin and his institutes, I think he professed it very well, speaking on this, not praying for, for this specific people group. He says this, It may be gathered from the context that it is not, as they say, a partial fall or a transgression of a single commandment, but apostasy, by which men wholly alienate themselves from God. They must then be retrograde and given up to this to destruction, who thus fall away so as to have no fear of God. And then he goes on and he says, this, this is very important. This is very important. He says, we ought not rashly conclude that anyone has brought on himself the judgment of eternal death. On the contrary, love. Love should dispose us to hope well. You should always cling to the hope. If it's pressed upon your heart to pray for an apostate, John's not condemning that. He's saying you're just not under any obligation. Just as we see in, in a church discipline type way where it could lead to this final giving them over to Satan, essentially pushing them out of the church. It takes a lot to get to that point. It isn't a very common thing, but it does happen. It's just to give them up. Give them up to, to the world. If they are truly the Lord's, he will bring them back. He will use that time to refine, to rebuke. But one who flat out denies, that's what we're talking about here, flat out uh, becomes an apostate turns from the profession they once gave. So then John, he, he concludes here. For those that, uh, who may be reading his, his letter and they see these words of the Apostle John and, and, and they begin to wander in their minds into this thinking of, of perfectionism of some sort, John, then he kind of turns and he starts to, to land this plane here with his very comforting 
reminder. He says this, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John, he, he's told us earlier in chapter 2, he said, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate. We have a great advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He says a few verses earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John, not at all in his letter, is advocating for any sort of perfectionism, but on the contrary. He's stating that, that we are still in this body of flesh. Although we have been regenerated, there are times that, that, that we can sin daily. For most, that we can even fall into a, a habitual type sin. There's great hope that, that the Lord will not leave that person astray. That the sins that we commit, whether intentional or unintentional, we have a great advocate. We have a great advocate with the Father. And cry out to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So in that, we Take heed, take solace, dear Christian. Take comfort as, as a child of God. That your sins are, are covered uh, past, present, and, and future. They, they must be covered. They have to be covered. Because Christ's sacrifices was a perfect once and for all sacrifice. The sins of your brothers and sisters, they are covered. If you see a brother's sin, pray. Pray with confidence. Knowing that they will be restored, knowing that that sin has already been washed away. If you yourself sin, confess to the advocate, confess with confidence. March on. March on, Christian soldier. Be sure, be sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What an amazing! Grace. What an amazing grace. And so this morning we, we get to partake in, in the Lord's Supper. We get to be reminded each and every week of this amazing grace and what our Lord has done. As He he's came and, and be, become the, the perfect, ultimate, once and for all sacrifice. So as we partake in, in the bread, be reminded of His, his body he gave up on the cross. His blood that was poured out. That blood that, that covered all the sins of all his people. That blood that, that, that cries out for his sheep. We have confidence that that, that that blood that cries out for his sheep, they will hear, each and every one of his sheep will hear his voice and they will come to him. As Paul said, as, as the Lord said to Paul, he said, there are many, there are many here 
in this city who are mine. There are many. Giving him that fuel, that, that extra boost to go. To go out and preach the gospel. Because he's already paid the price. Christ has already redeemed his lost sheep. That's the first cause. Secondary cause, go. Go and preach the gospel. Be the ambassador of the great message of the king. So we be reminded of that each and every time we drink the juice of what all in which Christ's blood entailed so much. So as we partake in that and, and we are reminded of the promise that he'll bring us to completion of great joy and great peace in knowing that, that this is our God. He's a complete God and that everything he does is to complete and perfect perfection. Right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus. Thank you for each and every person here under the sound of my voice. What a joy it is that, that you have brought us all into this, this fold here in this congregation and as well as into your entire body of Christ. Father, help us each and every day to be reminded of the magnitude of the sacrifice of your son. May that be our fuel. May that be our fuel to wake in the morning, to, to engage in study, to, to love those around us, to go to work and work diligently with our hands, knowing that you have provided the ability to do so. Help us proclaim. Proclaim to a dying world. Proclaim to a, a, a world that is spiritually dead the message that brings life. Father, I pray that you bless the elements of this communion this morning. Maybe partake in it in a holy manner. Pray all this in the precious name of your son Jesus. Amen.